What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Brent Gleason is a Navy SEAL combat veteran with multiple tours to Iraq and Africa and other theaters of war Upon leaving SEAL Team 5, Brent turned his discipline and battlefield lessons to the world of business and has become an accomplished entrepreneur, best-selling author, and acclaimed speaker on topics ranging from leadership and building high-performance teams to culture and organizational transformation. You can learn more about his leadership philosophies in his weekly columns on Inc.com and Forbes.com. He is the best-selling author of Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 fail-safe principles for leading through change, which was a number one new release in the categories of organizational change and business structural adjustment. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine-to-five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Brent, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no, of course. You've got a a very interesting and unique background to say the least. You've you've accomplished quite a lot and and now you're tackling some new challenges which you've been successful both in the business world and and now as a, a top-selling author. So I'm really interested in diving deep and hearing a lot of stories and how the listeners can can take some of the, your lessons and apply them to their own life. So really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I know. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so I mean you originally started as a Navy SEAL, but from what I've read that wasn't your plan originally. So how'd you end up uh, in the teams? <laughs> it's actually kind of an interesting story. I um, grew up in Dallas and did my undergrad at Southern Methodist University, uh, earning degrees in finance and economics, and hadn't really had any real serious aspirations of joining the military whatsoever. Uh, my dad had been a Marine reservist during Vietnam, but had never deployed and never uh, pushed that idea on uh, my twin brother, uh, nor I. And uh, I did, though, have a couple close friends in college, one who was a roommate who, uh, when we graduated, uh, joined the Navy and became an intel officer, and then one who was a year behind us who wanted to be a SEAL. I mean, that's kind of his childhood dream. And so when I graduated, I was working as a financial analyst for an investment firm. He was a senior, and we decided to start training together. It was just you know, a way to stay fit for me and help a friend prepare for an arduous journey. And during that time, we obviously had a lot of dialogue uh, about what that was going to entail. And I started doing some research and reading books about the history of the, the SEAL teams, Naval Special Warfare operations all over the world, and for obvious reasons, became rather fascinated by it. So 
over time that culminated in making the decision to say, you know what, I don't want to have any regrets. Uh, the idea of serving my country in that capacity uh, sounds very interesting and giving, uh, giving to something bigger than myself. And I knew that the, the world of finance and business would be there when I got out. So it's actually interesting. I, I, I mentor guys into the program and um, a guy who just started today, just started Buds, um, uh, he's here from Rancho Santa Fe where we live. Unfortunately, he just lost his mom literally uh, about six weeks ago. Um, so uh, a lot of hardship there, losing your parent right before you start SEAL training uh, is quite a quite a horrible thing. And he had the exact same journey, went to University of Miami, graduated, worked in finance for a year and then decided, I want to be a SEAL. <laughs> so that's kind of a brief history of how I at least started that journey. Well, I'll definitely want to jump on the the guy you're currently mentoring and overcoming that adversity. But you mentioned some of the books that you were reading uh, to kind of get your mindset ready. Any of those books really stand out? Some of the listeners should pick up. I started reading some of those uh, older Dick Marchenko books. He was the you know SEAL Team Six uh, commander. Um, most of them are were, were fiction books, um, and that kind of got me interested uh, in the you know uh, in the community. But then, uh, you know, books like, you know, The Men with Green Faces about Vietnam, other other Vietnam era books, those were kind of back then predominantly what was really written about. Um, so those were those were books that really got me interested in the, the idea and the history of the naval special warfare community. And then there's other um, books around the history of the underwater demolition teams in World War Two. And that's kind of where uh, the SEAL teams came from. And then they were reorganized and structured into what we are today during Vietnam. I mean, you mentioned you were training with a friend. I mean, today I could go onto YouTube and there's been plenty of shows that really highlight highlight what goes on during Buds. At the time, did you guys really have any idea what exactly went into it? And if so, what was your training like? We we had almost no resources uh, back then. <laughs> you know, you could go to the you know the, the Navy's website and there's some stuff online about you know the basic uh, ways you can train for essentially for the the physical test you have to pass just to get into Buds. Um, so there's kind of two avenues of training there. One, you're training your body for, um, you know, for a very, very physical job, but you also have to train specifically for that test so that you get into buds. Um, so it's different. You have to kind of coordinate your your training regimen to to accommodate both of those uh, avenues, sort of the short term and then, of course, the long term. So and and I'll get into what the resources that these guys have today. And that's phenomenal. Um but we, uh, you know, we, there were enough resources to know that, you know, we needed to kind of train uh, for the test, but also for uh, distance running. So we started running marathons. We started doing a lot more swimming, a lot of time in the water, um, a lot of calisthenics focused around body weight exercises, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, um, other types of strength training mixed in there. And we also practiced for some of the initial evolutions like drown proofing, where they tie your ankles and uh, ankles together and your arms behind your back um, under the 50 meter underwater swim. Uh, practiced that a lot. So we strengthen our, our lungs for long breath holds. So and, and then eventually I quit my job and he and I moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado, where we trained for about an additional four months up at 10,000 feet altitude to really get our bodies into peak physical condition before we joined the Navy. But the, the kids today, they have, um, they have formal mentorship programs, but also after everybody goes to either officer candidacy school or, or boot camp, they have a two month, um, uh, buds prep program where it's literally all day long strength training. You have strength training coaches, wellness coaches, uh, to get these kids into really, really great shape in a from formal capacity and also help them 
train for those initial evolutions like the 50 meter underwater swim, drown proofing and all those things. Because quite frankly, we're trying to graduate more guys <laughs> and it's the training isn't getting any easier. So they're trying to put more resources uh, front loaded to help these guys prep better. I mean, you mentioned the mentorship that you do. What, what's that look like from your perspective? Uh, are there like a few key takeaways you're, you're speaking to these young men, letting them know about, or are there specific training programs you're putting them on? It's, it's nothing formal. Uh, typically, that mentorship starts um, when they're either about to or have just started BUDS. Um, just because of just based on you know time, I have to be you know respectful of their time and, and I have to be thoughtful into who I invest my time in. Um, but I'll sort of informally you know, have calls and conversations with guys as they lead up to entering buds, uh, but then more formally um, mentor them. No formal programs per se, but I'll invest more time obviously on the weekends. Uh, and whatnot, having them over to the house and just talking to them about uh, how things are going and answering their questions and just giving them that support because the early days are very, very stressful. You're you're very sleep deprived and, you know, you're leading up those three weeks are leading up to hell week. <laughs> so it's, you've got, a, you've got a, a pretty big milestone. If Well, it's the biggest milestone. Um, and, and you know that you're going to weed out almost the entire class in the first month. So it's 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 stressful because you know that the stakes are high and the attrition rate is extremely high. Um, so kind of getting them through that point and then uh, and then just more informally mentoring them like this this guy that came over yesterday. Uh, he grew up in California and has never shot a, a weapon before. Uh, I grew up in Texas, so I was <laughs> shooting at the time I was in second grade. So that was never a, a challenge for me. So one of the things I'll do is take him to the range as frequently as possible before he gets to third phase so that he can at least have some baseline skills. Um, it'll, you know, help, it, it helps him avoid getting performance uh, rolled or things like that. So I'm thinking for those business leaders right now who are listening and, and hearing about your weeding out and, and your vetting process for someone who might want to have you be a mentor. Are there specific things you're looking for that you will say, without a doubt, I will never work with this guy uh, because, because of this, or is there anything that they can do that you, you see in them and say, you know what, this guy has it. I'm definitely going to help mentor this kid. It's it's kind of been a case by case situation and different in in almost every situation that I've that I've been in. Um, one you know one guy is an officer and SEAL Team One. He's been in for a long time now. I met his dad because we were raising some money for the SEAL Family Foundation and we we brought him out to the gala in New York. And his this his dad said, "Oh, I've got a son's graduating University of Texas. Going to thinking about entering the Marine Corps." And I said, "Let me talk to him." <laughs> so I started talking to him. I said, "Why don't you why don't you consider this?" this other path over here. And so that's one way. And this kid was super mature. Um, you know, and, I mean, grew up in a billionaire family, but chose to take a different path, which I thought was really cool. I really respected that. And as I got to know him, I knew he was serious and I knew that he would make it. Um, obviously you don't know hundred percent for sure, but having been in the teams, you have a feeling just based on, you know, the, the focus, discipline and demeanor of these young men. Just like the guy who came over yesterday, I've you know, never met him before, and I can I can tell he'll do well. Um, and then another another guy who reached out to me started reaching out to me when he was a sophomore in high school. <laughs> and and the funny thing is, he's the only kid who is right out of high school that I've ever mentored. Uh, the younger guys don't typically have as great a success rate, um, just because they're not quite old enough yet, not emotionally mature enough, haven't had any life experience outside of high school, and living living in mom and dad's house. But he was so persistent. And then one day, you know, kind of loosely kept in touch, one day he 
shot me a text and said, hey, just checked into Bud's. <laughs> Get your ass over the house. And he's, he's like, he's like family now. He babysits our children. <laughs> he's just finished his second deployment and he's far more disciplined. All he wants to do is go to dev group, which, you know, AKA SEAL Team 6. Yep. So all he does is study and work out. <laughs> he actually could probably loosen up a little bit, but... <laughs> I mean, you guys are infamous for for being able to deal with high stress situations. And you just men, mentioned this young man you're mentoring, and he lost his mom six weeks before entering buds. How are you helping him along with that process? And are there little tactics you learned while on the teams that can really help people in a stressful situation? I, a lot of it's just through through conversation and in sort of a storytelling mechanism based on my own experiences, and helping them start to transform their mindset with achieving you know, that lofty goal of graduating and going on to advanced training. Um, so I talked to them about some some ways they can just, you know, just like Olympic athletes do or just like special operators do before a mission, really envisioning that win and learning how to basically do two things simultaneously, maintain a long-term vision on, on what success will mean to him, which means earning your trident and going to a team. Um, and one of the things we found in all of our research and uh, that we've done trying to figure out sort of the mental, cognitive and physical makeup of students that are more likely to make it is uh, the less measurable elements, of course, of grit, resilience and a very deep passion to serve in that capacity, not just to serve in the military, but to be a SEAL and serve at that upper echelon uh, of special operations and really maintaining a focus on that vision and uh, the other piece is also simultaneously, it's kind of this weird dichotomy, also learning how to, at the same time, compartmentalize and just live in the moment. You know, we say you got to basically eat the elephant one bite at a time, and especially in the early days of buds. You, you you wake up, you focus on making it to breakfast, then you focus on making it to lunch, <laughs> one evolution at a time, one day at a time, uh, while also maintaining that long term vision of of winning. So if you can do those two things simultaneously while maintaining a positive mental attitude and really just honestly laughing through the most horrible parts. You, you, there's only two options when it gets that bad, cry or laugh. So those who, those who cry don't typically make it <laughs> or who focus too much on the pain of the moment and not sort of almost the baseline hilarity of how miserable you really are. <laughs> and these are memories, I, I remind them too, that these are memories they're going to have for the rest of their life. And the guys who who cannot transform that mindset and plaster on a smile and decide that they've, they, they can go no further. Well, guess what? An hour later, they're warm and dry and filled with regret. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and, and these moments, you know, you look back at, you know, hell week, for example, you know, looking back, you're like, God, that went by in a blink. Now it doesn't feel that way in the moment, but it's an interesting uh, physical and mental test. It's one of the most fascinating experience, experiments of mind and body you could imagine. And it's based around that 40% rule. When your brain is telling you, and I talked to these guys about this, when your brain is telling you, you can go no further, you're literally only 40% of the way to, to actually breaking. So it, it's just, uh, it's just a matter of continuing to move forward and um, compartmentalizing while maintaining that long-term vision. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating kind of to, to hear your mental process during this. And I think back to the legendary ring of the bell when someone's gonna quit. And uh, you obviously did not do that, but I've talked to a number of different SEALs and some of them say, you know what? I thought about ringing that bell every single day. Others say that never even entered my mind. What was it like for you? Did you ever think about ringing that bell? Never once did it ever enter my mind. But what I will say is there are definitely moments these micro moments almost every day, <laughs> especially in the first couple of months where 
you, you're, it's very hard to maintain a focus on the light at the end of the tunnel because you can't see it. There's not even a glimmer, <laughs> especially on the Sunday night of Hell Week when you realize that you're going to be doing these horrific evolutions literally for six days straight without stopping. It's almost impossible to wrap your mind around that reality. So there are those moments where you just you can't even fathom um, the uh, the challenge that that lays ahead. But then you got to kind of quell those little voices uh, in your mind and and the actual voices of the instructors telling you to quit. <laughs> That's the funny thing is you have internal voices telling you to stop and you have external voices telling you to stop. Hey, Gleason, this this isn't for you, man. Come on, <laughs> hop in this pickup truck. We've got the heat blasting. We got some blankets and some some pizza and some some hot cocoa. And guys fall for that crap. <laughs> guys are like, you know what? That sounds great. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm getting chills down my spine just, just thinking about you guys sitting in that room on Sunday night preparing for what's going to be Hell Week and <laughs> yeah, being able to compartmentalize that and deal with that. And I mean, one of your fam famous SEAL sayings, embrace the suck. Uh, I mean, is that just something you guys are constantly thinking about? And if so, what was one of the, the worst moments of it all? Well, yeah, I mean, and... As you know, we've got a hell of a lot of sayings in the SEAL teams. One of them, and one of my favorites, is embrace the suck. Um, and it's really, it really kind of, in a simple way, uh, sums up everything I just mentioned about positive mental attitude, mental fortitude. Um, but it also, it, you carry that with you the rest of your life. And it's really about pushing the boundaries of your comfort zone, because the more you do that, the wider your comfort zone becomes. Uh, and if you can do that as a discipline, literally every day, my, one of my buddies, David Goggins, um, a lot of your listeners will know him, uh, kind of a famous SEAL. He's also a, a very uh, well-known extreme ultra athlete, ultra marathon runner, uh, because for him being a SEAL wasn't enough, right? <laughs> but he and I, he and I graduated, uh, buds together and his philosophy is do something that sucks every day. Basically saying, embrace the suck and push your comfort zone, whether it's you know, that difficult conversation at work or you don't feel like working out, well, get off your ass and go do something, even if it's for 10 minutes. Um, but uh, that really is uh, the, the, the beauty of going back to your, your mentioning of Sunday. Uh, the beauty of that Sunday is the students report to the classroom uh, for Hell Week uh, that Sunday morning, just a couple required items in their possession. But the beauty of that day is the students have no idea when Hell Week will start. <laughs> and that's by design. <laughs> the, the anxiety is literally just driving you mad. And it's a weird paradox because, you know, it's probably going to be one of the worst weeks of your entire life, yet you just want it to begin. And uh, we had a very unfortunate uh, experience my class did during Hell Week. Uh, as a way of motivating us, our class leader, who is going to be the highest ranking officer in your training class, uh, one of the things he did that Sunday afternoon was read to us um, the uh, St. Crispin's Day speech from William Shakespeare's Henry V. And he read aloud those lines that say, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And the weird... Uh, irony is that John died four days later during Hell Week, uh, which is an unusual uh, thing to occur, but it does happen. We, guys do die during training, uh, more typically in platoon training, which is more dangerous once they're at a team. But it was just a weird uh, foreshadowing because he, our leader, uh, led us into Hell Week and then ended up having a massive heart failure um, and died on Thursday. Um, and our Hell Week shirts uh, have, a, have a, a quote, another quote from that speech. Uh, that, that says, um, roughly paraphrasing, uh, and those men afraid to go will see themselves as lesser men as they hear how we fought and died together. 
And uh, he had read to us that whole thing, and it was just a, a, a strange foreshadowing that he would actually pass away a few days later. But that was our first entree into what life in the teams would be like. And it was weird because it was right before 9-11. 9-11 occurred two days before my class started advanced training. Uh, and that thus began the entire, now what is an ongoing uh, transformation in, in the military, especially in the special operations community, going from a peacetime uh, organization to a wartime organization. But I would say that the the, the hardest moments come later uh, in your in your career. You don't feel that way in Buds because Buds is miserable, but it's the rigors of combat and then not bringing everybody home. Th- th- those are obviously the, the hardest times. I mean, I, I appreciate you opening up and, and talking about John there. I was really hoping we get to talk about that just so the listeners got some more into into your background and what you've been able to deal with, which obviously has led to a lot of your business success. And I'm wondering, I mean, you guys have this unbelievable training. When you walked away from the SEALs, was there a superhuman skill you felt like they developed in you? If I have to, I get that question a lot. And if I have to choose one, it's really, it's really discipline, discipline, you know, physical discipline, mental discipline, and your ability to manage stress and put life into <laughs> put life into perspective. Uh, when you go through things like that, then of course, with with uh, then multiple combat tours, um, it really helps you uh, navigate uh, life's adversity uh, throughout the rest of your life. I mean, uh, we all experience adversity in our lives. Um, till the day we go over the great divide. Um, but, uh, when you can use those experiences in a positive way to, to deal with adversity, whether it's financially or illness or death in the family, uh, divorce, uh, issues with your children, whatever those things may be, it helps you put those things into perspective and focus on dealing with, um, developing a solution as opposed to, um, just focusing on uh, the the challenge in that moment. Um, obviously, you know, I got out and you know, became an entrepreneur, which has about the same failure rate <laughs> as Bud's does. This was stressful, and, um, you know. Then uh, having you know the first company I started was uh, was a basically an early version of truly Herzillo. It was a real estate home planning search engine, and then uh, the uh, housing market collapsed. <laughs> Great <laughs> was time another there. <laughs> That was another challenge that had to be navigated rather quickly. And and so, you know, diversified, raised more money, started a second company. And then I'm just dealing with, you know, the the challenges of having employees and going from an entrepreneur with an idea to uh, a a leader of people, someone meant to inspire and engage and bring a team together in a very different environment. It's a different leadership mechanism uh, and management style, obviously, than you have in the SEAL teams. There's there's positive pieces of that, of course, that you that easily trans, translate over. But um, leading multi-generational workforces uh, in the civilian world is, is vastly different than on the battlefield, as you can imagine. So and then, you know, my you know, my wife and I, we have three kids, but you know, our daughter had a you know, serious birth defect during the pregnancy. She's fine now. But, you know, she had two very serious surgeries right after she was born. So all these different things that we experience in life uh, and all those challenges, uh, it's the, those experiences you can reflect back on and lean into uh, those key learnings uh, as a special operator and apply them to navigating you know, life's challenges, whatever they might be. Yeah, I'm thinking about a key learning opportunity for you, and that's when you finish your training, you end up going to SEAL Team 5. What, what's that like day one? How, how do you adapt to that culture? How do you help lead in a new scenario like that? <laughs> what do you mean? What's it like being a new guy? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> question. 
uh, it's it's intimidating because you're it's you know buds and SQT that's great you're getting sort of a piece and a piece of that culture and and, and starting to develop develop that mindset because you have these amazing instructors who are preparing you for that, but the day you check into your team that's you know that's go time that's when it becomes real, uh, and you really have to step up and in the teams it's widely known that all you have you know everybody's obviously uh, we you know we this is a common thing we're we're not extraordinary individuals necessarily. We're just, as we say in our ethos, a common man with an uncommon desire to succeed. But as a, as a new guy on a team, all you have is your reputation. So you really have to go all in on making sure that you're disciplined and you're getting there early, you're staying late, you're going outside of your job description to help other people with their work. Uh, it's just, that's part of our culture uh, too. It's, you know, you don't stay in your safe little swim lane. You're there working and working and helping other guys. When you're done with your job, you go Ask everybody else if they need help with theirs. Um, so and one interesting thing with my class is we were the first class to earn our tridents <laughs> before going to a team. This has changed uh, a lot um, over the years, but you, you used to graduate, and then you'd go to your team, and then you'd go through um, some, uh, a, basically a board review, uh, maybe usually about you know, six months into being at a team, and you had to earn your trident while you're at the team. They changed that, so and th they of course increased the training pipeline, and it's a lot more technical and rigorous than it used to be. So you learn a lot more. Guys come into teams now, free fall qualified with all these other qualifications, and so earning your trident prior to going to a team makes more sense now. But having been the first class to step foot onto a team with your trident <laughs> was not well uh, well received by uh, some of the guys at the team. So I'm not saying that we uh, condone hazing, um, but Let's just say there were some moments that involved uh, duct tape and <laughs> a lot of duct tape. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get those stories out of you after, over a few cocktails at some point. But um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we we had some of our subscribers uh, reach out when they heard that you were going to be coming on, and a lot of them are entrepreneurs and, and they're thinking about taking that leap and, and starting that business. And I'm curious, after your time with the seals, what's what's the first day like when you leave the seals and and you're getting into something else? Everybody's transition is a little bit different, but I've found that um, the most successful path for myself and, and others, obviously my friends and other guys that, I've, uh, that I uh, keep in touch with, is they have a very specific plan, uh, a very specific trajectory with what they want to do. Oftentimes when we see our servicemen and women coming out of the military, if they don't have a really, really specific plan, uh, it can lead to a little bit too much downtime, a little bit too much reflection, especially you know, those that have post-traumatic stress. Um, and it, it's harder to navigate that transition uh, because it's, it's, it's different. It's a different environment. You don't have the same level of camaraderie in the civilian world. And oftentimes people don't feel like they belong because it's just such a different world uh, on the other side, especially for those who serve for a long time. It's almost like being institutionalized. Uh, if you think about you know, prisoners who are in jail for a long time or in prison, they come out and they cannot transition to the civilian world. Um, and a lot of times that happens in a much different way, obviously, but it's when people don't have a plan, like I had a few buddies who got around the same time and they didn't really have that, you know, a really specific plan. And they were back in a platoon <laughs> six months later, because that's, that's where they felt they belonged and they had their identity uh, within that, you know, within that environment. Um, my plan was different. I, I wanted to go to grad school, get an MBA. So I studied for the GMAT and, and, uh, took the GMAT prior to my last deployment. So I already in the gym and um, been accepted my grad school program before I was combat tour. 
I got out and literally I got out and a week later I started my program. So it was just, I wanted to step into the next thing, dive in head first, go all in. Um, and that really helped. It was a good distraction, but also helped transition because there was nothing else to do but work my ass off in a totally different environment. Um, and I met my former business partner in grad school and we started the, the building the business plan of our first company while we were in that program and launched it upon graduation. So it's just been a speeding freight train <laughs> ever since with, with no downtime whatsoever. Yeah, I was going to say, good, so. I don't take it you're a guy who can really sit still for too long. And I mean, you mentioned your time with technology and both real estate. How'd you get into leadership training and speaking though? I've always had a passion for, for studying leadership, for writing about it. When I, we had started the, our second company, which was a digital marketing and uh, analytics company. And I had uh, just gotten uh, both my columns, uh, the weekly columns I have on Forbes.com and Inc.com. And I obviously had those for you know, content, content marketing and thought leadership for those businesses, but I really found more of a passion for studying and writing about leadership and management uh, as it applies to uh, leadership and management in the modern 21st century business organization, uh, organizational change and transformation, um, employee engagement, really how to leverage culture uh, to achieve specific results. Because um, most organizations out there, and I, I made this mistake in my own companies because as an entrepreneur, you especially if you go out there and raise money, it's, you know, it's, it's a race to that first milestone. And you're just thinking about growth and sales and shareholder value. And oftentimes we skip over those really, really fundamental foundational pieces of defining the culture that, so you can manage that culture and bring people into that culture who fit and have shared values. Um, you know, the core values, uh, how you, how you make decisions and how you communicate as a team. And when you can really focus on those fundamental foundational pieces, you're going to make better hiring decisions. You're going to better make better strategic growth uh, decisions. Um, but I didn't do that <laughs> with either of my first companies because we'd raised a bunch of money and it was time to grow and grow and grow and grow. And at the end of the day, the board didn't care about our culture, uh, which they should have, but they cared about, uh, you know, EBITDA <laughs> and, and growing that and the top line as well. But that's, that's one piece I really, really uh, always, when mentoring entrepreneurs as well or speaking to MBA programs, is don't skip that piece. Define it from day one and use that foundational piece to make every single decision that you do. Otherwise, you get a bit, it's a bit haphazard, you're flying by the seat of your pants, and eventually you're going to have to do it anyway. It's better to do it at the beginning than five years in when you start hitting those inevitable growth barriers and you're wondering what the hell's going on. Well, in large part, oftentimes those things are because you haven't defined many of the fundamental pieces of the business as to why it exists. What is the purpose? What is the vision? What's the mission and how are we going to get there? How do we work backwards from uh, that vision fulfillment to create a strategic path? Um, and so that I kind of learned that the hard way with the first business, got it right with the second one. Um, so that's one kind of overarching piece of advice I always give to entrepreneurs is don't skip that part. <laughs> I mean, talking about flying by the seat of your pants, do you remember your first uh, speaking engagement? Oh, yeah. So so anyways, I had started writing uh, my Forbes column uh, in 2012, which was titled the, the column is called From the Battlefield to the Boardroom, uh, taking basically special operations, culture and leadership philosophies, applying that to building high performing teams in the business world. And one Saturday morning, I opened my laptop. This is December of 2012. And I had a personal email from the president of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Asia Pacific. So one of the top four executives in the entire global organization <laughs> emailed me directly. And he's this, today, he's still only 46 years old. 
um, just a banking prodigy, a guy from Australia, grew up in a middle-class family, uh, worked at Goldman Sachs, then to UBS, and then over to Bank of America and just shot right to the top. Uh, and we're now, ironically, we're now godparents to each other's children. We travel and vacation together. And the email said, hey, I just read your first article in your Forbes column. I love how you bring these philosophies over to the business world. We're still dealing with a lot of culture assimilation issues post-merger. They had just you know, finished their merger with uh, Merrill Lynch. And he asked if I'd come to a series of keynote presentations and workshops uh, over a period of three days at their global leadership conference in Hong Kong, which was the following month in January. <laughs> he didn't ask if I was a speaker or a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> or I have a website or videos and big, I'm going to see that stuff. <laughs> so, but I'm an entrepreneur. So what did I say? Of I said, course. Yeah. <laughs> of course I'll be there. <laughs> and I sent the email and turned to my wife and I was like, oh crap. <laughs> what did I just commit to? But you know, it's that mindset uh, of discipline. So I prepared relentlessly for it for the, for the next four weeks, went out there and it went very well. I was terrified. I mean, absolutely terrified. I mean, who likes public speaking? Uh, not not many people. I mean, I enjoy the hell out of it now, but it's been you know six years of this doing it every week. Um, but I also enjoy getting outside my comfort zone. <laughs> that's where I that's where I thrive, and that's where oftentimes in our lives that the magic can really happen when you push the boundaries of your comfort zone. You open up the area for for opportunity for things that maybe you didn't even think you would have a passion for, and that's exactly what happened. So it went so well that they brought me out to Singapore and Sydney the following month. And again, I just found a growing passion for it. And so I started doing that. But of course, I, I had a ethical and fiduciary responsibility to lead the company that I was currently leading. Um, so I didn't do it that much. I didn't seek out speaking opportunities or anything like that. When they did arise, I would use them as a business development opportunity for, for that company. Um, but uh, the opportunity just kept coming and coming. And then, uh, in 2016 and came time to sell the business. So sold that business in August of 2016. And, uh, the, the plan for 2017 was to write the book, double the frequency, frequency of speaking, and then start building a, a team and business model around the principles in the book. And so that's what I did last year. And I've really, uh, um, gone all in on that this year as well. So. No, I absolutely love that story. And and one of the things I, I was hoping we'd talk about is being uncomfortable. And one of those famous SEAL sayings is get comfortable be with being uncomfortable. And, and during this conversation, it seems like you embrace that so much. And it's it's why you've been able to have some success and learn from your failures and your mistakes. So it's cool to hear about what you've gone after and how you've accomplished that. And you mentioned writing your book. It came out in February. One I really enjoyed, Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 Fail-Safe Principles for Leading Through Change. I, I obviously want the listeners to pick this book up, but are there a few of these key principles you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think the book, as you know, is broken into three parts. The first part, and the book is written and this is uh, on purpose, is written for entrepreneurs, for existing and emerging business leaders. But a lot of people have taken these principles and applied them to their personal lives or to, to family. Um, and the first part is all about culture, culture transformation, and improving the two most important cultural pillars in an organization built for high performance, which are uh, trust and accountability. Um, but chapter one, I really, uh, really like, and it's, it's the first chapter for a reason, uh, to my point earlier about really focusing on building the culture that you want. 
and a culture that's designed to achieve specific business results. Uh, that's why it's chapter one, <laughs> because in my, in my previous failings as a business leader, it would have been chapter six. <laughs> the first chapter would have been sales. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an important thing to note and something that I really took out of the SEAL teams because our culture is by design and we make decisions based on that culture. Um, but one thing that's interesting to note about our history is that just like a lot of business organizations out there, uh, you know, 9-11 happened. We were moving at the speed of war for five years. We didn't create the Navy SEAL ethos, which essentially is kind of our mission, vision, values, and, and purpose statement all wrapped into one nice one-page um, ethos. That didn't come about until 2005. It was an interesting thing. They did. They literally, it's very corporate. They did a leadership offsite event <laughs> at San Clemente Island for three days. And the, the head shed came together and realized, guys, we, you know, we're flying by the seat of our pants here, but we've never really sat down and put on paper why we exist, who we are, what is our, what is our shared value uh, system? Uh, what is our, what is our mission? What's our vision as an organization? And how do we connect that with the result we're trying to achieve, which of course is to defeat our nation's enemies. Um, and it, it also applies to the re one of the reasons we did that is because we need a stronger cultural foundation because we entered these conflicts as a very, you know, it's the military. We are a very siloed, slow moving uh, 20th century organization. And we made the incorrect assumption that we were fighting the same organizational structure. But of course, we were not. We we're fighting uh, now a very, very decentralized enemy, the more agile enemy. So we as an organization had to go through a major transformation, both structurally and from a systems and process standpoint. But eventually, organizational change uh, efforts, uh, eventually that leads to culture transformation and mindset transformation. Uh, you change the mechanisms and systems first, and eventually the culture change changes to support those systems. Um, and that's kind of one of the correlations I draw in the book and a lot of my writings and keynotes presentations is drawing similarities and correlations between the military's organizational change strategies and um, how the well, most well-run business organizations are implementing those more agile philosophies in, in their in their businesses. So, any certain businesses in history that you've studied and, and really thought did a great job on ex in executing on that? Um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of my favorite you know books. Obviously, going through grad school, I love Marshall Goldsmith's "What Got You Here Won't Get You There." <laughs> I think you're you know. In the name of this podcast, I'm sure you're aware of that book. Um, but also, Jim Collins is good to great, built to last. Uh, a lot of uh, those books and the companies they talk about in those books um, have uh, they they the books are great because there's a lot of fact based data and and research and studies showing how organizations get this stuff right and how they get them how they get it wrong and, and drawing those key learnings. Because uh, as an, a young entrepreneur. I did not yet have the skill set of leading organizational change, which is a very complex uh, element of leadership. Uh, you know, le leadership just in general is one of the most difficult um, talents to, to master, much less apply leading and managing in a very dynamic uh, business world. Uh, one of the many acronyms we have in the, in the military is, is VUCA, which stands for the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environments that we operate in. But that acronym is now widely used in the global business community, and rightfully so, because we live in such a disruptive, fast-paced modern world that leaders and managers in organizations, whether they be young entrepreneurs or people who've been executives for many years, are having to play catch-up and figure out how to, how to correctly lead change. Because unfortunately, according to McKinsey and company data from last year, 
literally 70% of organizational change efforts, regardless of what those transformations are, fall short of meeting their objectives uh, due to many factors that I talk about in the book. I mean, that's a pretty pretty uh, intimidating statistic when you think about how many organizations out there are going through almost what is now a constant state of change. Um, but if you can use some of the principles in the book, if not all the principles, and apply those to uh, building resilient organizations that are more um, accepting of change, uh, then you have a much greater success rate. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned McKinsey's statistics, and we're at this point with technology and, and things are changing, like you mentioned, so quickly. Do you think similar things have happened in the past? It's just technology is different, and we can look back to history to kind of understand what's going to happen next? Or is it we're at a time that's so unique in history, uh, we kind of just need to think on our own feet? I, I think it's I, it's definitely a little bit of both, but I think that we it is, to your exact point, we're in such a unique time, uh, in, you know, with this age of disruption. I mean, technology is changing at a faster pace than it ever has been before. Uh, but organizations, most organizations are not structured to keep up with that rate of change. So even with the just almost endless amounts of tools and technology and resources we have at our disposal, it hasn't yet necessarily transformed uh, organizations to be more efficient. People are still trying to figure out how to really use all these different technologies to create greater efficiencies and productivity in their organization and how to align that with what they're trying to achieve and their culture and the desired business results. Um, but, um, it, it, but I think the mindset is starting to shift. I was looking at some, some data the other day in the 2017 KPMG CEO outlook report. It's actually now 65% of CEOs see disruption and change in their marketplace as an opportunity on their SWOT analysis, as opposed to a threat. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, I think organizations and, and leaders are starting to kind of figure out how they can use disruption as a competitive advantage as opposed to uh, a disadvantage. And the other data point from that study was that 74% are going to be investing much, much more heavily in improving their culture and employee engagement uh, to maintain that competitive advantage. Uh, so to my point earlier, it's something that people are just now starting to, they've always, we've always known it's important, but oftentimes in this disruptive uh, business environment, those things get deprioritized because we're just trying to play catch up and, and stay competitive and grow. And we're forced to grow faster with fewer resources. Therefore, discussions around culture and engagement, which are critically important to the bottom line, still get deprioritized because there's so many other factors of the business that need to be focused on. When you think of disruption, uh, is, is there an industry right now? Is there a business? Is there something that you think is just prime for disruption you would love to get your hands on? <sighs> if I had the time, I'd say probably the cannabis industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the world of cannabis and CBD is a, you know, already a multi-billion dollar industry and people are just now just now getting their toe in the water. But uh, not something I'm going to pursue, but I, I see other organizations and, and very, very savvy uh, investment firms, uh, taking a real serious, hard look at it. So no, I love getting your perspective there. And I mean, I, I believe leadership starts with yourself and it's funny. I mentioned, we reached out to a bunch of the subscribers to ask you some questions. And the, one of the ones that just kept coming up is about you, your efficiency, your routines. Is there anything you've implemented over the, the decades you've been doing this to all culminate to now what you do every single day? Yeah, it's actually, I've gotten asked that before. And then I also did, um, uh, an article was written uh, on, it's called my morning routine. It's actually a pretty widely read blog, but, um, it's really, it goes, it really goes back to, to, to discipline. I don't mean that from a just overly regimented un, unthought out process, but B 
being disciplined in your routine routine every day. And the more discipline you have in your life, at least from my perspective, uh, the more you get done, the happier you are, uh, the more purpose driven your life can be. So it's really about making choices on how you spend your time from a wellness perspective, fitness perspective, your business goals, carving out time to give back. Uh, that's really, really big. But you have to you have to plan accordingly. Uh, I've always been a very organized person. I'm a very big to-do list person, but a to-do a to list is also pretty worthless unless it's prioritized uh, and properly managed. Otherwise, you're just doing a bunch of things poorly all at once. <laughs> it's, it's really, so I'm very regimented in my daily to-do list, how I prioritize that to-do list, and then how I take whatever maybe didn't get done or got bumped the following day, I organize it again the night before uh, so that I'm ready to go for the following day. So I always work a little bit on Sunday, not at the, at the, um, you know, deprioritization of family, but I always like to get a little bit done on Sunday because I don't like Monday to be a day of playing catch up. It's gotta be a hit the ground running type of day, uh, and organizing the week around, uh, again, carving out time for prioritizing fitness and wellness. I believe in that wholeheartedly. You have more energy, you get more done, you feel better about yourself, uh, you're just healthier, uh, and you think more clearly and therefore you can, um, in my, at least in my experience, you can, uh, just be much more productive uh, and happy with your life. Um, but so for example, I travel a lot. So my routine also obviously has to change when I'm at home. It's a little bit different than when I'm going from airport to airport to hotel to hotel for these for consulting or keynote presentations. But I, so I have in that regard also a very regimented process in every single thing I do from the time I get off the plane to what I, what work I get done on the plane to what I do in the car on the way to the hotel, what I do at the hotel, how I prepare for a keynote presentation, even though I might have five in a week, it's the exact same routine and process of rehearsal and pre preparation every single time. Uh, and I never deviate from it unless, you know, there's an external factor that shows that I need to deviate from it somehow. So it's really about being disciplined and regimented and, and, and the more disciplined you are, um, usually uh, the more freedom you have in your life to pursue opportunities and goals. Uh, and you just, uh, it just seems a lot more fulfilling uh, in that regard. Well, thank you for sharing that. We're definitely link that up. Uh, my morning routine is a great article. The listeners can check that out. You mentioned carving out time and, uh, you've given us more time than, than we could have asked for today. This was an absolute pleasure for me. Uh, we can't thank you enough for your service. You probably have a lot of business owners right now, pretty jacked up and they would love to follow you purchase your books. <laughs> Where can they best stay connected with you and, uh, stay engaged? Uh, sure. My, my website is brentgleasonspeaker.com. Uh, That's got a lot of resources, a lot of videos, more about um, the work that we do at Taking Point Leadership. Um, I'm on Twitter, just at Brent Gleason. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, of course, where that's where I share a lot of my articles and content. Uh, so the, I think those are the three most, um, uh, probably most uh, important uh, avenues. I, I'm on Instagram, but to be totally honest, my wife manages it, so I'm not really sure what's going on. <laughs> so I can't do everything. But <laughs> At least you're honest She's about it. Same same anyway, so I figured she would be the best possible candidate. <laughs> awesome. Well, Brent Gleason, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks, brother. It was an honor. Uh, had a fun, uh, a fun time. I'm sure we could talk forever, but uh, we'll do it again. Awesome. Thank you. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine-to-five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. 
Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.